and paying attention to as many many steps uh, as possible. I, I notice it's really different than just walking and not paying such close attention to the walking sensations. So I was just thinking, walking up here, well, what is the difference? Just, of course, walking is good exercise and feel refreshed when you come back from a walk after end of a day or early in the morning. Um, but two things, two things became clear again, you know, just walking up here. And one was by feeling the sensations, stretching, tension, tightness, movement, pressure, so forth, just intuitively feeling that. I feel more, I I feel both an energy and a focus coming together. Because I'm, I'm focused watching the changing sensations, but by paying attention to the movement, feeling the movement, it's also uplifting. Uplifted, a combination of uplifting energy and and this fluid focus, concentration. I think, well, that's, that's a good reason to do walking meditation. It's, it's a good practice to do um, as a, a complement and a side-by-side companion to all the other postures, sitting, standing. Because there's this long association, understandable, Meditation is sitting, you know, cross-legged or sitting on a chair, or, or it's just sitting. That we, it's synonymous to say sitting when we're talking about meditation. You know, do you sit? Where do you sit? You know, who do you sit with? How many retreats have you sat? You know, <laughs> nobody says, did, did have you? How many retreats have you walked? Have you stood? Have you laid down, you know? Don't usually say that. So it kind of fits with the the theme of tonight's talk and probably the the next one too, on what's what are known as the seven bojanga, bojanga, um, awakening factors, factors that awaken the mind. Seven factors of enlightenment, traditional terminology. Boj from Bud, awaken, Anga, qualities, factors, components. Uh, and essentially, they, they fall around energy and, and focusing. Mindfulness being the initial one, that one that starts starts it off, sustains, and develops the other six factors. And the other six factors are three energizing ones and three um, calming ones. Investigation is a non-conceptual investigation, energy, and... um, 
and joy or joyous interest. Those are the energizing ones. Of course, that inquiry, the curiosity of investigation, just that wonderment of noticing what's going on. It's the nature of this body and mind, these thoughts. When I'm walking, when I'm sitting, when I'm eating, all the things, all the activities throughout the day that will lift, that will lift the mind up and, and lift the heart. And energy, of course, and this is a particular kind of energy, this Dhamma energy, uh, unlike other kinds of energy, because it's, it's, it's peculiar to the path uh, and as an awakening factor. A lot of things can energize the mind. This one does it in a unique, rich, deep way. And then um, joy, as, as the last energizing, starts off as just taking an interest in observing what is happening with a single breath or a single step or uh, uh, the nature of, of thoughts and emotions. Uh, particularly when we're balanced and not preferring just the pleasant and afraid or repressive of the unpleasant. But rather, you know, wow, what is this? This, this kind of joyous awe. Uh, and it, it graduates into very refined states of joy, which I mentioned last retreat and I'll, and I'll mention again. Uh, if not tonight, in the next talk. So once we're, what do we do, you know, once we lift the mind, lift the heart? It's good to have that energy. But we can't just always be up. It, it can, it, that itself will be exhausting. It needs, it needs to be, it needs to be balanced with three, three other qualities that balance it. Calm or tranquility, Concentration, the stilling, the stilling of the mind or the unification of the mind-body, the oneness of the mind-body, and the seventh awakening factor, equanimity, the balance, the pure, uh, riveting, balance of mind that can be with anything at any time under any conditions and not be swayed, not being thrown back or lunged forward, just there, completely present with things as they are. So starting with, um, with mindfulness, we've been primarily doing the Brahma Vihara practice this past week. Um, with with some highlights of the vipassana, bringing in the vipassana mindfulness uh, as an aid at times to help hold experience, particularly when it's strong, strongly pleasant, strongly unpleasant, um, to get a feel for the reality of what's happening, because that stabilizes things. And so mindfulness is is crucial to the success of the Brahma-viharas, these qualities of unconditional love, compassion, uh, empathetic joy, and 
the equanimity of the Brahma Vihara toward people and things. And so the shifting now, and some of you are integrating, some of you have just dropped the past practice, but those qualities come forward anyway, as you're noticing. We're shifting to what's called Satipatthana, Vipassana. And Satipatthana is the is the word that uh, is the the real definition of mindfulness, the, the mindfulness of this middle path, where sati is a, a pre-verbal awareness, preconceptual, it's that awareness applied at a special pitch to here and now, just this moment. Mindfulness doesn't anticipate the next moment. That would be a thought formation. Nor does it pull back past thoughts or past experience to think about it. That's reflection. So the very preconceptual nature of this mindfulness, uh, what makes it so unique is that it can only be here and now. It only happens in this very moment. Only now. Uh, and the, the pa, as Michelle was saying last night, is emphatic. You could say powerful. And tana is uh, literally to stand upon or to, to be upon. So it's this uh, powerful presence to stand upon or within this powerful presence of, of awareness. Mindful awareness, and the and the vipassana is seen nature, where the v is is nature, nature, body, elements, mind elements, what we see, what we hear, all of our experience, all conditioned experience, what is meant by nature and pasana, seen, meaning seen intuitively. So it's not just kind of intellectual observation. It's not just cognizing. It drops into this intuitive or instinctive level of knowing, which we can't make happen, but we can create the conditions. It's like sweeping our, our, our house, you know, of all the dust, getting rid of everything and making everything ready for a, a visitor whose arrival we don't know. I don't know when that they're going to come, when they're going to visit. Uh, but they do. And that's the effect of, of this practice, the purifying nature of this practice. So sati pitana, uh, to this powerful presence of mind that sees things as they are, sees nature as it is. An example I've I've used over the years of what what does it look like this pre-verbal awareness? What is an example of it? How would that seem? Well, I take a, an example from our indigenous ancestry and indigenous cousins in various places on the planet. Now, in the mid '80s, Michelle and I. Uh, 
taught a series of retreats in South Africa. Uh, and in between, one month and then another, uh, we were guests for a couple of weeks um, at one of the retreatants' uh, farm. Uh, it was like a um, preservation, like it used to be a hunting lodge, but now it was a preservation reserve in Botswana, right? This little finger of land between Zimbabwe and South Africa. Uh, and it's just the realm of the animals, this animal realm. When you walk into it, you know, you know, you don't belong there. So you're there quite respectfully. Just, just the scent, let alone when you start observing who lives there, tells you, you know, it's not your place. So be cool, be nice. Go home. <laughs> what? I said, and, and go home. Go home, right. <laughs> The first night there, we went to this, what's called a hide. It's like 60 feet up, it's a platform in a tree over an African water hole on a full moon night. Um, <laughs> I was so excited. I was up there all night, you know, with binoculars, watching the water hole. Michelle had her covers over her head. <laughs> Don't tell me what's down there. Don't tell me what's down there. <laughs> Every day... Every day, Lapata, this tracker, would walk 12 miles from his village to meet us and, and take us into the bush and, and show us things and keep us from harm's way. Uh, he was very lovely, easygoing nature, totally relaxed, at ease, really at ease with things. Uh, so we'd just be like going along with him and he'd just be pointing things out. Suddenly a track, you know, uh, a flicker of a shadow in the bush and he'd see something. It'd take us a while you know, to figure out what he was he was seeing. He kept doing this and so I started feeling, well, I want to see something first, you know. So I had my foot-long binoculars and kept spying in every direction, and, and still Lapata would, and he'd be like talking to Michelle and pointing in another direction. And how is he doing that, you know? How is he doing that? And then after a while I thought, he, he must feed them the night before. He must know, get them to hang out in a particular place, or maybe they even tied to a tree or something, like a Botswana Disneyland. So I... I just started to observe his behavior, and then one one of the days, you know, before he came or after, I said, what do, you, what do you think he's doing to Michelle? And and it just dawned on us that he was like in this pre-verbal awareness, attuned with his senses. Everything was coming into his senses, light and shadow, the eye, and sound vibration, <coughs> scent, and this, this is the place where scent is, you know, crucial for knowing where you are, for locating where you are and what's around you. And probably taste and body vibration. He could feel elephant herd through the ground, through his femurs, long before we would know they were there. 
And of course, intuition, that attunement to things, that kind of attunement is this what we're practicing, this quality, this preverbal awareness we, we have. In fact, we have all of these seven awakening factors. It's like we have all the four uh, Brahma Vihara. We just create the conditions for them to step forward for the obstacles and, and knots to unravel and fall away. Likewise with these, these qualities and mindfulness in particular, especially the kind of mindfulness that's, that's essential as an awakening factor, as a, as a liberation, force of liberation this capacity to attune right to our immediate experience. We have it all here. The body with its senses, uh, including uh, the mental body. Attunement to that with pre-thought, this pre-thought kind of awareness. What do we read then? You know, What happens then? What happens when we have this kind of an awareness? aside from any thoughts and reflections about it. That's what we're here to find out. The the Buddha told this story once that led to describing what it is we become mindful of. The story he told was of uh, the quail and the falcon. Many of you have heard this before. And it's like, a birth story. It's called a birth story. So it's like the Buddha in a previous life. So the mythology goes. So once he's born as a quail and had this huge tract of land that was his ancestral home, his native land, many, many generations of smart quails were there before him and survived uh, for ages. Uh, and he had he had this curiosity that sometimes maybe wasn't quite as smart. And one of them was he always wondered what was beyond the edge of his ancestral home, you know, beyond the briars, in the other bush, in that other place. So one day he decided to venture beyond what he knew, and he went kind of through the briars, hopping from here to there, getting scratched a bit, and kind of finally taking off for a longer flight. And suddenly from nowhere, he was grabbed by the talons of a falcon. The falcon had been waiting for years, kind of watching the curiosity of this young quail and thinking, he's going to make a mistake someday. His curiosity is going to take him where he shouldn't go. And so he was, he was waiting at this cliff edge, and he got it at the right time. Got the quail, was taking it back to the cliff edge for a long-anticipated meal. So our formerly uh, free little quail had to be smart again and thought to himself, you know, how, how am I going to get myself out of this mess? And he thought, hmm... This is a falcon, much bigger than I, much faster with these radical claws. It's probably vulnerable to pride, conceit. So 
That's how the quail got him to do his wishes, which was, you know, Mr. Falcon, if I had been in my own land, you would never have been able to grab me. Oh, yeah, said the falcon. You know, his pride stirred. I'll put you right back in your land. Flew him back over in the land, put him right in the middle of huge field and said, go where you will. And then the falcon kind of flew up to the clouds and turned around and zeroed in on the quail down there with his telescopic eyes and just zoomed, zoomed and zoomed, like broke the sound barrier. And just before he reached, he put his uh, talons out uh, to grab our quail. The quail never moved an inch. They stood there the whole time. Only the last nanosecond did he just move aside a little bit. He knew a hole was there that only he knew was there. Dropped into the hole, and then Mr. Falcon just crashed to the ground. Big pile of feathers and bones. And our little quail, our hero, stood on top of the bones and feathers and crossed his feathers and said, There, you see? In my own ancestral land, I cannot be harmed. I'm safe. And I'm in control of my destiny. So the Buddha said, <clears throat> All right, disciples, what is our ancestral home? What's our native land? And he described <clears throat> our native land, our native home, are the four foundations of mindfulness. The body feeling tone, which in this case isn't emotions. It's just the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral affect of each moment of experience. And the mind, the mind and mind states, and phenomena. You know, all psychological experience, all emotions and thoughts, and all the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought process itself. This is inclusive of our entire conditioned experience. There is nothing outside of that. There are concepts, but the concepts aren't our native home. Concepts aren't felt experience. They don't have the texture and the characteristic or the nature of pressure, tightness, heat, warmth. So to say, to refer to our foot or our head or even our body is to refer to conceptual picture. We're not feeling the body we're feeling the nature, these elements of nature, pressure, tightness, tension, flowing, cohesion, heat, and so forth. That is real. That's our ancestral land. We can know that. We can know its unique nature, its particular nature and its behavior of change. Same with the mind. We can know mental states, emotions, we can even know the thinking process. So, like where thinking is real, the story that we might 
be identified with and attached to isn't. It's just a picture in our mind, like a memory, or planning, or fantasy. It doesn't have the texture of here and now, of feeling the nature of an emotion. Now, in a story, emotion might arise, and we can mindfully sort of pluck that emotion out of the story and feel it here and now. Fear, joy, sorrow. It has, it has texture. It has um, characteristic. It has physical corresponding sensations. But the story itself, the content, is imaginary. So it's like the briar fields. And this is part of our practice, is to determine and learn you know, what, is, what, is, what part of our experience is to be known and to be understood and to see and understand its, its nature toward freedom, toward letting go of attachment. So we create a safe container. We create sacred space. We encourage uh, everyone to subscribe to non-harming, honesty, uh, and this culture of gentleness. And, And together, the silence and the sila help to bring that stillness, help attune the kind of awareness that's this pre-verbal attention that we can now just apply and just start. We start usually with the body. We don't have to. There, There are teachers, even in our lineage, who just have you start being aware of six senses, six sense door awareness. It can be a little rough, you know. Just what do you do? Well, you just probably start thinking a lot in the beginning, but eventually, one comes around uh, and begins to see what it is that comes in through any of the senses and what its nature is, how it changes, and so forth. But in the particular technique of this tradition, the Mahasi tradition, our teacher Upandita. Generally, we start with something more tangible, like the body. The body or the breath, which is also the body. Uh, And use it to anchor. Anchor that pre-verbal awareness to get it going. We just get it going for a few seconds at a time. And then we're thinking, or we're imagining, or it's another, you know, sensation and itch and so forth. Um, and then again, coming back until, you know, gradually we can stay for some moments, sometimes even some minutes, this consecutive, concurrent awareness of sensation within the body or the breath, the rise and fall. And that just starts to collect the attention, starts to still the mind we find our attention, then we sort of let go. At times we let go the anchor, primary anchor, and just start attending to whatever might be calling attention. Visual experience, thoughts, 
imagination, sounds, other sensations in the body. Uh, And gradually, this awareness deepens and pervades at the same time. So sometimes it's quite a global awareness. We're we're feeling, it's it's like a sense of being embedded in the body and the six senses at once. Upandita would call that like a panoramic awareness. At other times, it's as if an inner guide, inner wisdom, directs the awareness through the eye of the needle, so to speak. We go right down into the, the micro nature of a sensation. So someone was kind of reporting today, is it still Vipassana when I'm watching the rising and falling? And it, everything seems to come to a point in the rising and falling. And the answer is yes to that. In Burma, that described or affirmed when, when sometimes it would feel like just a thread on a tree, a silk thread that was blowing in the breeze. And other times it felt like, a, like a, just a point and moving, or sometimes not even moving. Because the more, <clears throat> the more focus we get, more concentrated, the more our sense of form falls away. The conceptual sense of form, like breath is a concept, uh, abdomen is a concept, uh, breathing is a concept. The sensations that are felt and known aren't concepts. So if concepts fall away, so the, the, the form of the abdomen may disappear. Any idea of breathing may disappear. We may not even be sure if it's rising or falling, you know, in or out. Even the body can fade into the background or at times completely disappear. It becomes so subtle, it may as well have disappeared. Still, there's this awareness in touch with the process of things, feeling the minutia of what uh, the other night I referred to as datu. Datu is the, the term for the elemental nature and, and the old Indian term uh, earth, water, fire, air, earth being textures, hard and soft and smooth and rough, and, and water, the binding, cohering nature. It holds all the other elements together. It's the water element that holds our body together in its aspect of cohesion. Also its aspect of flow. And the fire element, of course, heat, hot, warmth, cool, cold, and air element, support. Think of air uh, in a balloon or wind in a sail. Support is what we feel when we can sit up straight, when we can reach, when we're moving, when we're walking. That firmness, that support is an aspect of air, our wind element. But it's also the movement itself, our oscillation. It's also vibration, and very, very subtle vibration, like tingling. So those, those moments when everything is soft and neither hot or cold, and real balanced in terms of cohesion and fluidity, 
uh, and just tingling, very pleasant. As opposed to when we feel sensations or datu of extreme heat, hardness, pressure, tension, unpleasant, what we call pain. So this exploration of datu is part of our ancestral home. We are learning from the inside the nature of the body, and we're learning how to embody awareness, embed the senses with this, this awareness. It's very similar to Lapata's ability and skill to attune to his total environment, to let the environment in and read it with the language of sensation and sound and scent and intuitive knowledge and so forth. That's what we're doing to know the body as the body. That means the nature of the body from within the body rather than body as concept. And feelings... He gave, Buddha gave its its own domain, its own category. Feelings could easily fall under the category of the mind or consciousness because it is mental. What's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral is mental. In fact, the body is the only materiality of the four domains of awareness. Everything else is the stream of mentality. So why feelings? Why give feelings its own space, its own field of investigation, its own ancestral home? Feelings can be a portal to awakening, to liberation. As we learn to differentiate what is innate to a moment of experience and what is extra to a moment of experience, it becomes a portal to insight uh, or to awakening. So, for example, often we're not quite sure if something that's very pleasant, physically very pleasant, or mentally very pleasant, or very pleasant sound, or very pleasant sight, scent, taste. We're not quite sure of the difference between that pleasantness and what is attachment to that pleasantness. Now, attachment is a, it's a phenomena, you know, it's a mental phenomena, it's a dharma, it's real. We can feel its stickiness, we can feel its clutch, we can feel its hook. However, it's not innate to a moment of experience. It's not born and bred and lives on in the heart, whereas pleasant feelings are, and so are unpleasant feelings, and so are neutral feelings. So unpleasant feelings, this hot and hard and tearing and oppressive, painful as they can be, are different than aversion to the unpleasant, fear of the unpleasant, rejection. That attachment and that aversion are extra. They are not innate to a moment of experience. Every moment of experience, feeling is there, so is perception. 
so is an intention and some degree of attention and concentration, as well as the, the knowing part of a moment of experience. All sentient beings have those qualities. That's how they're able to survive. They feel pleasant and unpleasant, and they perceive colors and forms, and they have intentions to eat or breed or whatever, and they have a a knowing faculty, however small or great. As we learn to cultivate and bring mindfulness forward, we start to see very clearly, very succinctly, that that moment of feeling, tone, whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is just that. That pleasant is pleasant. And we can bask in it and enjoy it. In fact, the Buddha encouraged it. I'll speak later of how he spoke strongly about the commendable nature of pleasant feelings, how they how they increase skillful states and decrease unskillful states, how they are indeed the stepping stones to liberation. So pleasure, pleasant feeling tone is beautiful, it's wonderful. Attachment to them is extra. An attachment, as we learn, is painful. Attachment actually takes away from the pleasantness. There's in, inherent in attachment is fear of losing what we want. And the very clinging to it is like gr- the body gripping, the hand holding on. So we study these feelings in order to understand how they lead just to even one moment of freedom where we can just be with pleasant as pleasant without needing it to stay. Because feeling tones also teach us in depth the nature of impermanence, how quickly experience rises and disappears. Because they're just there every moment of consciousness, which is faster than we we can ever see. Like one blink of an eye, and there's some millions of moments, of mind moments. So generally we're attuning to the obvious arising of a moment of pleasant feeling when there's an opportunity to just be with the pleasant and, and whittle away at the habit of holding on to it. Whittle away at the habit of wanting, craving, Likewise, with unpleasant. Unpleasant leads to a liberating moment or or insight or awakening just as much as pleasant. Unpleasant teaches us about the nature of a whole huge chunk of our life. Like just sitting still. How long can you sit before you have an unpleasant feeling? A minute? (laughs) A few seconds, you know? Why do we sit? Why do we sit and try not to fidget too much? 
you know, just to the edge of the bearable. And then, of course, we, we shift. It's okay to shift. And, and why do we follow a form at all? Why do we pay attention everywhere? You know, because if we don't, we just are, we bury ourselves in distraction. We divert all the time, always looking or thinking or going for something that will avoid that unpleasant and sustain, ideally, hopefully, something that is pleasant. So sticking out moments of unpleasant helps develop uh, the habit of letting go aversion, anger, irritation, ill will, repression, rejection, denial, all those ways, all those strategies to avoid the unpleasant. And gradually increases our capacity to be in the world, in especially out of retreat, with less reactivity. You know, okay, it's unpleasant. That's unpleasant. So okay, aversion is a message. Yeah, it's not okay. It's reactive. It's not conscious. You know, in a mindful way, it's not mindful. It wants to get rid of. It wants to avoid, it wants to run from. It makes sense. So very gradually, we're learning to be with pleasant without attachment, to be with unpleasant without aversion, to be with neutral, without confusion or delusion. When we don't pay attention to neutral feeling, we're cultivating ignorance or delusion, bewilderment of the mind. Just like we're cultivating attachment if we try to hold on to pleasant, and ill will if we try to avoid unpleasant. You can start to see why the Buddha gave this mental quality called Vedana, feeling tone, its own domain of our ancestral home to explore. Third is the um, citta, is the word for heart and mind, same word heart, mind. First we just notice citta as um, dots, images, mental impulses, what we call mental, what we seem like thoughts, just quick, very quick mental impulses. That's like when something flashes by very quickly and we wonder what that was, you know. And when we're being mindful, it happens more and more. The thoughts stick less and less. They stop stitching themselves into a story and then uh, our drama and whole narrative that we're embedded in, identified with, attached to, and so forth. So we just get to know first the nature of this mind by observing the different kinds of thoughts. Thoughts about the future, about the past, about now, uh, habits of mind, judging, constantly commenting, that running commentary. As I mentioned in the last retreat, a very liberating thing to remember about the discursive mind. Thoughts are quite often discursive, but they also can be very succinct and ordered, concise. You know, we can definitely think mindfully and skillfully, but left, left alone, the mind usually drifts from here to there and assessing the past, worried about the future and 
judging the present, something like that. Um, what was really helpful to hear from Upandita at one time in retreat was that side by side with the discursive mind, that mindfulness, concentration, and the whole insight process happen simultaneously. They happen side by side. So, you know, very quickly, like we go, we notice we're thinking, we try to come back to the breath, a few seconds of mindfulness. Then again, we're off. Every so often, we have those few seconds of mindfulness. But they're extremely potent. So a moment of mindfulness is greater than tens of thousands of unmindful moments. So they build up. And because I had so much trust, it just it helped me relax a lot. And I just began to have more confidence in myself and trust in the process. And it's exactly what happened because so many insights, even an awakening, happens in the moment of anger. When suddenly we see anger as impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. We see the nature of anger. We see it as it really is, without identification. It's not my anger. It's not I am angry. It's just anger. It has a certain nature. So this is part of the exploration of this third domain of mindfulness. What is the nature of the mind? Well, the nature of anger, it darkens consciousness. It heats up the body and speeds up the heart rate and pulse and flushes the neck and all the sensations, everything we feel about it. Uh, It's mental nature and it's physical impact and um, as an emotion. You know, it's very demanding and contracting as opposed to metta, for example, which has a very expanding nature, light instead of darkness. The body flushing in a very different way, lightly, brightly, gently, pleasant sensations. So that's how we investigate um, mind. And then eventually we see that aspects of the mind are just the pure knowing, the pure knowing part of consciousness. Every sentient being knows but every central being doesn't know that it knows. So mindfulness is a unique mental state that recognizes the nature of knowing. So then we're knowing mindfully, we're knowing consciously, rather than like any sentient being that it knows that there's prey and there's water and you know it has the same kind of knowing that we do visual and auditory sense and so forth. But it's also very aware of that nature, not identified with it. So the more we're mindful, the most subtle area of attachment is consciousness itself. You know, I think, I know. And we, we miss the designation of that term, I or me or mine. It's just simply a designation. It's just indicating knowing. Whereas quite 
often we're attached and identified with the knowing. When it's just knowing, it's very powerful. Then one of the most subtle areas of practice is when we're, it's just moment to moment knowing. What are we knowing? Well, we're knowing sensation. We're knowing visual experience. We're knowing sound. We're knowing scent or taste. We're knowing emotions. But knowing becomes the anchor when practice gets very subtle. So instead of the object of knowing, which we're mainly paying attention to now, sensations, sounds, sights, it's like the objects take more of the background and knowing more of the foreground. That's where some of the brain surgery of disidentification and non-attachment occur. So the last of these is the body, feeling tone, is the mind or consciousness. And the last is called um, dhammas with the meaning of um, phenomena. All other phenomena, all other psychological phenomena, emotions, and like when we are paying attention to sense experience. So we could very simply make it uh, succinct in the six sense fields of experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, knowing. That's the four foundations. That's our ancestral home. That's being safe in the boundaries of our ancestral land. When we venture into the conceptual realm is where we get entangled, is where we get attached, identified, confused. So it's very simple. Every time that we notice that we are conceptualizing experience, we are identifying, we just notice that. There's nothing outside of the domain of mindfulness. We just notice. A moment of mindfulness is so pure and powerful that in the very nano moment of being aware, there's no attachment. It's the nature of mindfulness to not identify. Its nature is non-identification, non-attachment, non-reactivity. It's already stabilized. The very last awakening factor of equanimity occurs the very first moment of mindfulness. It was really hard for us to explain to my mom why we were going to these retreats all the time. And in the days I was in Burma, um, in the India and Burma in the 70s, early 80s, there was no internet, right? So it took a long time for a letter to reach, if ever. But I, I remember a couple of her letters. I remember one in particular saying, oh, I received your letter. Thank you very much. Very descriptive of the monastery and your teacher Upandita and uh, the generosity of the people. You know, you 
nothing is ever asked, and you're always welcome to practice in these monastic complexes, uh, and you're fed, sheltered, and taught uh, without any expectation, without any, there's not even a dana talk, you know. It just works. It just works and it has for centuries. She said, however, it seems like a very Spartan life. You know, and she hadn't yet really understood what being a monk was until one day I was in the monastery alone because I got a visa to come into Burma when everyone else had to leave. The dictator at the time, every six months or so, kicked all foreigners out of the country. So they all had to leave, but you know, a paper is a piece of paper, and apparently it's really powerful, even with dictators. So here I was, the only foreigner in the, in the country, uh, at, at this monastery, and this press person, also able to get a visa, David Gray, in fact, he's still the AP Bureau Chief in Asia. He was a young reporter at that time, and he came to study why Westerners were going to Burma and Southeast Asia and India. So he asked if he could, you know, interview the Westerners. And I said, well, I am the Westerners. <laughs> so I asked, well, can I, I asked you about your meditation. He's really a nice man. So I said, yeah, okay, you can. Can I take a few pictures? And by the way, I'm not a very good photographer because he couldn't get his photographer in, no visa. So that all happened. I talked about meditation and the practice and what drew me there. And he took a couple of pictures. Uh, then months later, I learned that it went out internationally. In the International Herald, Tribune, New York Times, and the Honolulu Advertiser. And the Boston Globe. Yeah, her, her parents saw it too. <laughs> and the way he took a picture, in my head, I was walking, doing walking meditation, it made my head look really bizarre, like a cone head. It looked like a cone head from Mars, you know. It just freaked my mother out, you know. <laughs> Michelle's dad. But one day, we came back to Hawaii from teaching a retreat. She had a st- stack of mail and an article from a book she was reading that said something like this. Because I don't have the quote here. But it it was an acknowledgement that she was understanding now what we were doing. And the quote was something like, there are... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.